You're tuned into the Chug LLP's podcast. We are a full-service legal, immigration, and tax firm with a global outlook. We partner with businesses to deliver innovative, customized solutions to their most pressing challenges. Join us as we tackle some pertinent issues. My name is Neha Mahajan and I am the business development and outreach manager here at Chub. I love to say it and it holds true that the world of immigration here in the United States of America is rapidly changing. There are just so many updates that comes sometimes by the dozens in a week, right? And it makes it um, it makes us all kind of anxious about the new guidelines and that's exactly why it is important to have the right kind of counsel from people who are experienced, are knowledgeable, and will do the right thing. And this is exactly why people, we bring this live session to you every Thursday so that if there are any questions that you have, we are live, you can leave us the comments and we will try to answer them as much as we can. Joining me today from our LA office is uh, immigration team lead, Carmen Lopez, who's been with the firm for, for a really, really, really long time. And uh, also joining us is attorney Jacqueline gonzalez White, who's also been with the firm for a really long time. Hello and welcome, ladies. So, you know, the December visa bulletin came by and dates have moved a little. And we've been seeing this kind of rapid uh, movement since uh, last October, October 2020, really, right? Um, and one common question that I am sure you get all the time, and so do I, is about adjustment of status. What is adjustment of status? What is council processing for adjustment of status? How does it work? Who is eligible? How do we go about it? Oh my God, there are just so many questions. People are anxious because, you know, as you know, employment-based green card category doesn't always move so much for India and there's a massive backlog and people are anxious when it moves, right? And rightfully so. So Jackie, you know, this is my question to you. Uh, in your expert opinion, uh, what do you think one should do? Oh, you're a mute, Jackie. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's um, <laughs> thank you, Neha. Yeah, I'll start by maybe explaining a little bit of what uh, adjustment of status is versus consular processing. Um, adjustment of status is generally a process that is done when someone is already in the US and they may have some other type of status um, such as H or L or maybe tourist or something like that. Um, and they want to adjust or change their status to that of a legal permanent resident. Um, consular processing on the other hand um, is for people who they may be in the US or are outside of the United, outside of the United States, but they're going to apply for an immigrant visa, which will eventually lead to a green card or you know, they'll obtain a green card and the process is done at a consular, uh, a consulate or embassy abroad. Um, in terms of the adjustment of status process, in order to be eligible to adjust status in the United States, um, you do need to, uh, you know, be able to show that you have had lawful entry into the United States, you have lawful status, 
um, you've been able to maintain lawful status. And that's, you know, generally, there are exceptions to that, such as if you have a, you know, you're an immediate relative of a US citizen, for example. Um, you also need to have an underlying petition, right? So there needs to be either an I-130 or an I-140 form um, that has been approved. Um, however, if let's say the priority dates are current when you're filing the underlying petition, um, then you are able to file the underlying petition and the I-45 concurrently together. Um, so the I-45 form is the form that's filed for the actual green card application and for the adjustment of status. Um, along with the I-45 form, you can apply for EAD work permit authorization document, a travel document. Um, you do need to submit other marriage certificate, a passport, you know, proof of immigration, status um, and a medical exam as well. Um, so that is the adjustment of status process for people that are in the United States. Um, in terms of the processing time for that, um, generally it depends on the processing center that's handling the case. Uh, we've seen that it's generally taking over 12 months for an adjustment of status application uh, you know, to be issued a, you know, either approved or issued an interview. Um, a lot of times we get clients that will, you know, contact us and maybe they filed their adjustment of status application one or two months ago, three months ago. And they say, you know, my priority day is current. Um, so they're expecting their green card to be issued right away. And that's not the case. Um, there is a process that happens when the green card, uh, adjustment of status application is filed, right? You, it's received, you have to do biometrics, there's background checks, it goes through different uh, processing centers. And so um, generally that process is taking about 12 months or so. Yeah. And uh, in certain cases, the green card can be issued either via mail or you will get an interview appointment notice um, to you know, present yourself at a USCIS um, field office and do an interview before your green card is approved. Okay. Um, of consular processing, um, it's somewhat different, right? So for adjustment of status, you can, if the priority dates are current, you can possibly file the underlying petition and the I-45 application concurrently. Uh, however, for consular processing, you do have to have your underlying petition approved already. Um, instead of filing the I-485 form, you file the DS-260 application on the Department of State website. Um, and like I said, you do have to have your either I-130 or I-140 already approved in order to be able to file that application. Um, you... So after you file the application, then you do have to submit some certain documents. Uh, they have to be uploaded onto the Department of State website. Similarly to the adjustment of status process, it's you know the birth certificate, marriage certificate, or yeah. immigration documents. Um, and then consulates do require for applicants to submit police clearance certificates. Uh, but generally once the uh, consulate 
or the Department of State, the National Visa Center receives the DS-260 application and the supporting documents that are necessary. Um, they will forward the you know, application or the case to the appropriate consulate um, who will then contact the applicant to schedule an interview once they have an appointment. Yeah. Uh, um, so generally, you know, essentially the end result could be the same, right? It, it eventually leads to a green card for people that apply for an immigrant visa abroad, they're issued an immigrant visa on their passport, which allows them to enter the US uh, as a legal permanent resident. And then their green card comes in the mail a few weeks. Yeah, that, that sounds quite intense actually. And of course you have to wait for your priority date to become current, which takes years at length, and then wait another year for the green card. I mean, I wish, you know, the, immigration system in the United States of America was a little modern, you know, instead of relying on mail services, this could all be, you know, online, it would be just so much easier, it would save so much time and energy. Don't you think so? Right, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think that will probably be the future. Um, yeah. There are applications that can be filed online now, and even the Department of State process of uploading documents, you know, that's only been in existence a few years. Before that, everything had to be mailed. Um, yeah. I think it's probably going to be the future. I hope that happens quickly. <laughs> yeah, come yeah, on. I wanted to also add that right now, due to COVID-19, a lot of uh, immigrant appointments for both employment-based cases and family-based cases are stuck. They're not able to come. So we're getting a lot of clients calling us and asking us, uh, is there anything that we can do to enter the U.S. And, and adjust in the U.S.? And so you have to be a little careful with those sorts of things because um, it just depends on the visa that you can enter on. There's certain visas that you have what's called a dual intent where if you come in and adjust, it's fine. But then you have other visas like visitor visas, F1 visas, and other types of non-immigrant visas that do not have a dual intent. And so it's a little dangerous and risky to enter the U.S. on those visas and adjust it in the United States because you're stuck in, in you know, let's say a foreign country waiting for your interview for so long long. Um, and then I just wanted to add that the EAD, the advanced parole that you do file uh, when you adjust status in the U.S. is taking quite a long time. I mean, we're seeing things from like nine, processing times of about nine months to 12 months plus to get. And it's not uncommon to actually get a green card actually approved sooner than even getting the EAD advanced parole. We have cases where the, the green card was issued and the EAD advanced parole, uh, advanced parole and EAD were denied because, um, you know, it was reached later, you know, and so you don't need it anymore. Obviously, that's a temporary benefit you receive while the application for adjustment is pending. Well, that, that'll be a lottery if someone gets it, you know, <laughs> if someone yes. gets directly, if they get the green card directly instead of uh, all these uh, little steps in between, right? Sure. Yeah, so you both, you both spoke about, uh, you know, um, about the council processing and those who want to enter United States of America. I want to talk about, and Carmen, this will be for you, and you probably know what I'm going to talk about already. <laughs> you know, I would like to uh, talk about stamping you know, and the mm -hmm. whole backlog, there are people who want to travel to various countries to visit their parents, you know, COVID situation, God forbid, you know, something happens, you want to be there, uh, you want to see them, you want to check on them. And it's nothing less than a nightmare to find a date, you know, um, right? So what do yes. you what do you have to say, Carmen? What do people do? Well, I'm sure you get this question all the right. time. What do I do about visa stamping? 
Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, I just want to give a little bit of a background that pre-COVID, uh, for people who are in the U.S. on non-immigrant status, they have choices of going to Mexico or Canada. This is pre-COVID, and I'll talk about COVID, you know, after COVID or during COVID in a second. But um, in general, uh, people who are here in the U.S. on non-immigrant visas, let's say they're on, on a uh, H1 or L1 or F1, for example, um, you can go to Mexico if they already have that type of visa in their passport. So for example, if a person is in the US and has an H1 that expired the visa in their passport, they can actually go to Mexico and get a visa stamped in Mexico. Now the benefits of going to a different country that's not your own country obviously is the timing. I've, I feel that these officers and these consulates are a little bit, you know, um, they, they take into consideration that these individuals are third country nationals visiting their consulates. And so the processing times are a lot less. You know, we've seen uh, stampings, you know, from three days to two weeks. Yeah, you're stuck in a hotel if you don't have family in those countries. But um, for example, Mexico, and then you get the stamping. In Canada, they allow you to go there if you have, you know, a different type of visa. Okay, but they just don't want to see any any cases that have issues. So, for example, out of status issues or worked out without authorization. Um, so, for example, people who are changing status from F1 to H1 on a cap lottery case and they get approved, they can go for stamping on an H in Canada. Um, you know, the, the Canada, you need a visa, though, so you have to plan ahead. Sometimes I've heard these, these visa stampings for other countries like Canada are taking time to get. Um, but now let's talk about today, you know, COVID and, and how it's been for the last, you know, year plus with COVID-19. Um, I don't recommend going to third country because these countries are having challenges even getting people that can go for stamping even on TNs under NAFTA where they can go, Canadian citizens or, or Mexican citizens are even having trouble getting stampings you know, and they're from those countries. Imagine third country nationals. Um, we've reached out to Canadian, you know, Canadian consulate, for example, um, and things keep changing on their websites. We always have to keep looking on their websites for any changes. Um, but the, the consulate's website basically said to us, the Embassy of Canada recently, this is recent, about a week, um, said, we encourage you to go to your home country. So you, you going, and let's just assume you get an appointment in third country like Canada, it doesn't mean you're gonna get the visa. So I recommend you definitely go to your home country for that, uh, for stamping. Now, the thing is that you have to ask yourself right now, should I even go? Because, um, you know, I already have clients that have scheduled appointments literally three months. They scheduled one in July, it was canceled. They scheduled one in August, it was canceled. And then, if, and then three months in a row was canceled. So um, you go at your discretion. Um, you know, you might get stuck out there. Uh, you might get administrative processing, you might get a 221G, you know, this is administrative processing that they issue you, uh, you know, request for more documents or they need to do checks on the case. Yeah. So definitely travel, you take it at your own risk. Um, hopefully people that have advanced parole maybe could use advanced parole to enter the United States if they filed an adjustment of status and are holding an H-1 approval notice, an I-797A, where they're actually holding H-1 status or working on their H-1. Um, if they have an advanced parole issued through adjustment of status, then they could use that to enter the United States um, and still maintain their underlying H-1 status. Yeah. So that those are, you know, ways around. But I, definitely if you travel to any concept for stamping, especially in a home country, there could be delays, cancellations. So you, you travel at your own risk. Yeah, wise words there, Carmen, because it is what it is right now. Sadly, you know, everybody's scrambling. And I see, I think consulates have been working at a way less capacity since the onset of the pandemic. So I feel that if it's not urgent, do not travel. And if you do travel, just be prepared to be stuck there. You know, I hope you have some arrangement with your 
employer if you're on an H-1B uh, so that you can continue to work from India, but then let's not even think of getting in that situation, you know, just, just don't travel right now. It's just um, very tricky. And I also want to mention here that today's discussion is only for informational purposes. This does not mean that we are giving any legal advice. If you have any questions for us, we'd be happy to answer them during this live session. But if you want to reach out to us for a more thorough counsel, um, info at chook.com, that's our email ID. Send us your question, mention about the, uh, you know, this, this live, and we'd be happy to help you. Um, and now, you know, another common question that comes to me all the time, and pretty sure your phones have been, you know, ringing off the hook, uh, is uh, into filing, Jackie, you know, downgrade yes. for it because data yes. And then now that EB2 has kind of caught up with EB3, uh, into file, right? So what advice do you have? Right, yes, we've been getting so many calls about this. Um, and so, as you mentioned, uh, EB3, priority date retrogressed. Uh, a lot of people have EB2, uh, I-140s that are current. Um, and so they're contacting us and wanting to know, you know what can we do? Um, so Neha, you mentioned interfiling. That is one of the options. Uh, Interfiling is basically, you know, a request that's made to USCIS to interfile the EB2 I-140 um, underlying petition with the pending I-45 application. Um, and so uh, the way that you do this request is, uh, you know, we normally will submit a letter to USCIS uh, requesting them to interfile the, the EB2 I-140. Um, we'll submit a copy of the EB2 I-140 approval notice, um, an updated I-45 supplement J, uh, and then a statement from the applicant, that, you know, confirming that they want to interfile their, you know, that uh, EB2 petition. Um, and uh, there are pros and cons to this. You know, um, the, one of the pros of doing this request, as opposed to, you know, just refiling a new I-45 based on the EB-2, um, the pro is that, you know, there's no additional filing fees, right? So if you were to refile an I or file a new I-45, you have to pay all the filing fees, uh, yeah. the medical exam again, and all of that stuff, right? So if you do an interfile request, um, there's no filing fees associated with that. Um, and uh, you can keep using your, you know, current uh, EAD or AP that was issued under your current I-45 uh, pending application. Um, the cons to uh, an interfile request are that you don't necessarily, there's no form that's submitted, right? There's no filing fee. Um, there's no real way of tracking if USCIS received other than like maybe your FedEx tracking label or whatever, yeah. but there's no way, you know, of tracking if USCIS is processing the request or where it's at. Um, USCIS does not send a letter confirming that they received your interfile request or that, you know, it's been interfiled. Um, and so you just kind of have to trust that they're going to do it. Well, right? I, I wouldn't trust you as you guys with that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, 
we've had, you know, we've done a, a several of them and they have successfully been interfiled, but um, you don't really know until, you know, you either the green card gets approved or you get an interview notice and, you know, that's kind it's of like nail biting weight. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the other option is doing a, you know, an EB3 refiling. Um, before I want to move on to that, I do want to mention that for the EB2 interfiling, the only way you're able to do that is if the priority dates are current in on the final action date chart. So even though USCIS may be accepting I-485 applications, let's say under the dates for filing, um, for EB2 interfiling or any interfiling request, it has to be current on the final date action chart for USCIS to approve the, the request. Um, and another con to the interfiling is that once you do the interfiling, let's say you request for your EB2 I-140 to be interfiled, um, you would no longer be able to, again, interfile the EB3 I-140. So, um, you know, if, if the, stuck there. Right, if the EB3 dates suddenly advance, um, you're stuck with the EB2 case. And there's no way, there's no guess game around it because, you know, USCIS has a mind of its own. They, you know, they either further the dates or go back on dates uh, based on their own algorithms and no one, no one has insights to it, right? So, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So this is something yeah. that we'd like to be mindful of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, the 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 pro to filing just a new I-485 based on the EB2 is that you do get the confirmation, right? You get receipt notices. You know that it's being processed and received by USCIS. Um, but you do have to pay all the fees again. Um, you know, and they're expensive, especially if you have a family of three, four people. Um and then another uh, you know, con that we've seen for filing a new case is that um, we have seen that when people have two uh, I-45 applications pending, this can sometimes cause confusion with USCIS. We've gotten RFEs where you know, they'll say, we see that you have two cases pending, which one are you pursuing? Um, and they request for us to pick one and then withdraw the other one. And that can just cause delays, you know, long unnecessary delays in the processing of both applications when you have more than one application pending. Um, so generally what we would recommend our, our clients, um, you know, and it depends on each, each case, right? Uh, but generally uh, an interfile, we've seen that they have been successful and we've been able to, you know, get them approved. Um, the I-45 having multiple filings, we have seen these types of RFPs um, and delays in that. So that's quite insightful, Jackie. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's not a win-win situation, but it's like making best out of the situation you are in, right? But you have to be mindful of the kind of decision you're making because there are pros and cons to it. So thank you for you know reiterating all of that. Uh, and I want to reiterate here that we are live right now on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And if you have any questions. Uh, you can send it to us uh, in the comment section. If you're watching us as a recorded version, um, you can always reach out to us, info at chug.com. And this, is, uh, this discussion today is for informational purposes only. 
please do not consider this to be a legal advice. Um, now, Carmen, you know, uh, just this week, um, there was a ban implemented on eight African countries. Just last month, you know, the ban was lifted from many, many countries after almost a year or even more, right? And now, because of this new proclamation, the latest ban on eight African countries, everybody's gone, they're becoming anxious. They're like, oh, is the ban going to return? Is this the great return of the ban? So as to say, you know, people <laughs> yeah. are scared, right? So, you know, we don't have insights into the workings of uh, Department of State or the White House, but from your experience, what do you think? People are really anxious right now. I know, I, I understand, you know, the anxiety and I don't blame them because, you know, for the last several years, we've had so many executive orders, presidential proclamations and people being stuck for one reason or another. Uh, and it's unpredictable. I mean, now we have this new strain just coming, you know, coming up just last week, they announced it, which can change things. Although right now there is no presidential proclamation, for example, in countries like European countries or India, for example, who uh, can now enter the United States as long as they have their vaccination and a negative COVID. Um, there is no presidential proclamation, but like you said, now this new virus uh, stemming out of these Af African countries, these eight countries, they have to follow the same proclamation that other countries like India, you you know, European countries followed before, um, which is, you know, if, if it was to be coming back another pre presidential proclamation, you will be stuck, but there are ways around. So what I wanted to just remind, you know, everyone in case you don't know the way it used to work is that this is for India's presidential proclamation that just, you know, ended early November. Okay. Um, it was that you, if you have a visa in your passport, let's say you have an H-1B visa, um, you could either, either, um, go to another country like Mexico and park yourself there for 14 days in quarantine and enter the United States. Um, you didn't have to do that if you have a US citizen child or a spouse is a US citizen. So there are certain criteria that you don't need to quarantine yourself in a different country if you have a certain type of relative, right? That's a citizen perhaps. Um, and just to name a few, because there's a whole list of that. Um, um, and, and if you didn't have a visa and you wanted to get one, um, you needed to uh, meet one of the national interest exceptions um, yeah. on the list, you know, for example. Yeah. And one of them would be that you are employed, for example, for a with a company in the U.S. on an H-1 that um, it's a it's a critical uh, infrastructure like you know defense, healthcare, information technology, etc. And if you could show that you're a critical employee, and you could get your stamping done and get an appointment sooner, um, and then come in. So, I mean, those things are things that happened before. Those are things that are not happening in an African country, these eight countries. But it's not to say that this may not come back. You know, it's changing by the, by the week, by the month, you know, that, that we, you know, things could happen. So, again, the only thing that we could say to you is that if you travel, travel at your own risk. Travel if it's an absolute emergency. Uh, right now, uh, for these countries, such as, you know, European countries, India, they don't have a proclamation in place right now. So if you literally come in, come in next week and there's a proclamation, you can come in on your, on your advanced parole, your non-immigrant visa, but what will happen two weeks after that or a month after that, we don't know. Um, it's, it's just travel at your own risk and know that um, you have to decide, can my employers lose, you know, uh, risk having me stuck in India or a different country for a month or six months or nine months? And if the answer is no to that, there's your answer. I think you should really decide whether you really want to travel or not. 
Right. And it directly, it would directly impact your career if you're on an H1B. So you will have to be yeah. mindful of that, right? And yes, I just thought, I mean, we've had clients, yes. Yeah. Sorry, we're getting a lot of questions right now, Carmen. We're getting a lot of questions. Um, and either you or Jackie could answer that. Murli asks, uh, do we need to reprocess the perm and I-140 when relocating to do a different state within same employer? Uh, apparently, he's just moving from state A to state B. And the current form and I-140 is filed with the, the same location as state A. So what would be your mm -hmm. answer? I know that I, I, I understand that happens a lot in the industry where companies move and they file perm applications. Perm, you know, for the viewers is an application through to obtain lawful residence through employment. Um, yeah. When a perm is filed, you have to mention the work location um, where the person will physically work. And that is where uh, typically the recruitment and the recruitment efforts have to occur to try to recruit U.S. citizens before a perm can be filed for that foreign national. So, for example, if they are in the state of California, um, and that's the lo location, but somewhere in the process, whether it be through the PERM process or the I-140, which is the second stage of the green card, uh, or any time after that, if the employer moves to a different state and the, and the, loca the location is not within a, a drivable distance, okay? So this is kind of like a, it, it, it makes a difference if it's you know more than 50 miles, for example. Okay, yeah. um, then that sort of maybe influence the U.S. worker to not apply or apply. So you recruited and tried to find someone in, in, that, in that state, in that county, in that location, but now the employer's moved, then they need to do another PERM application and, and, and do the recruitment all over again. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, there's another thing that, what I want to say is there's loopholes. I mean, for example, let's say that state A and state B, um, they're border border towns, you know, and they're within 30 to 50 miles. So the new office may have been in California. Now they open an office in Arizona, but it's within 30 miles. Then in that situation, you do not have to do uh, the perm all over again because it's within a drivable distance that a, a, a U.S. worker or an applicant would have driven, you know, maybe 30 miles, 40 miles, which is, you know, not yeah. uncommon. A lot of us drive you know? Yeah. To get yeah. Murli, I hope that answers your question. We have just about five minutes left. So I'm going to take on to this next question. And I think Jackie, maybe you could answer that. Vasu Prakashi asks, uh, my I-485 and ED application were filed on July 1st. My dates are current and I had a query on the date of birth certificate. We addressed that on November 16th. How much long is the wait time to get my ED or my green card? My application is at Nebraska Center. Right. So, you know, as we mentioned, um, the processing times depend on the service center that's handling the case, right? Um, we have generally seen that they're taking over 12 months uh, for the entire I-45 to be processed. Carmen also mentioned that for EAD, we've, it's also taking above nine months, even, you know, over a year. And like she mentioned, there's been times where we've had green cards approved before the EAD is even issued. Um, so if, you know, the case was filed July 1st, you know, we understand that the priority dates may be current and, you know, people have done, you know, biometrics and answered RFPs and all that stuff. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean that the case is gonna be approved or processed right away. There's yeah. still a processing time that has to be done. Um, USCIS does have a website where you can check 
the current processing time on an I-485 application for the specific service center that's handling your case. Um, but generally we would say over nine months for EAD and over a year for uh, the final adjudication of the adjustment of status. Yeah, Mas Prakash, I hope that answers your question. We have a question coming from Neenu. Um, is it possible to come to the US on H-1B visa that was issued in 2006? It was only used for two weeks in 2006 and had validity uh, from 2006 until 2009. What's, what's the answer? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And, you know, um, so the, the rule is that um, that when a person maxes out six years of H-1, they have to stay out one year before they can file a new cap case. But for people who have actually come to the U.S. before, whether it be a week or a month, there is no clear guidance that says that you have to have to had this entry uh, within six years. So, you know, here your, your situation is 2006. That's a long time ago. And you would think, yeah. oh, it has to be within six years to be able to use the remainder option, meaning the recapture time. But here in the situation, we have been successful in filing applications where um, it may have been more than six years ago. The person spent two weeks or a month or six months and they have whatever remains and to be able to file an H-1B without going in the lottery and just being cap exempt and filing it this time. So I feel this person can, has, has a good chance of filing the case and, and coming as soon as an employer files and gets uh, the approval and uh, of course gets the stamping and enters the okay. United States. Which mm -hmm. is a nightmare right now. I'm sorry, me. No, I don't want to be a party people, but yes, that's, that's where it stands at the moment. I want to thank you, Carmen and Jackie, for taking out time from your busy schedules. I know how busy you are. Um, and thank you to the audience for joining us today for this uh, discussion. You know, we bring this uh, discussion, these topics every week, and we talk uh, about pertinent issues um, uh, regarding immigration corporate laws, tax. So if you have any of those questions, feel free to email them to us, info at chook.com. And if you have a suggestion for a topic that you'd like for us to discuss, for us to talk about, we'd be more than happy to do that. Please mention it and send it to us at info at chook.com. Stay safe and sound. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our work, please visit our websites at www.chug.com for legal and immigration and www.chug.net for tax. Be sure to subscribe to get regular business insights from the Chug LLP team.